2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, before we get started this week, I want to tell you about a sponsor who is making today's show possible. That sponsor is Audible, the best place in the world to find audiobooks. They have 180,000 of them for you to choose from. I have, a, I have a hypothesis, Max, which is that our listeners are uniquely suited to the, the Audible environment because uh, they are people who enjoy great writers, great writing, and they also like to listen to things. In fact, they could listen to people they've heard on this show. Like who, who, give me give me some examples. Uh, I don't know. Michael Lewis. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Liz Gilbert. They are all on Audible. In fact, many of them are reading their own books. If you like the sound of their voice on our show, you'd probably like them on Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That is audiblepodcast.com slash longform. You'll get a 30-day free trial. Start listening to some books. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello. What Evan's, we got on the show? Evan's lounging. I am Evan lounging. lounging. I'm got... sitting on the couch. We lost one of our chairs. Yeah. <laughs> you have to do all your interviews lying down now. If you let it go, it'll come back to you. I, I feel like it, it brings a, a certain relaxed sensibility that we don't always have. Yes. Well, it's, it gets very intense in here. Very intense. Uh, who did, who who are you speaking to this week, Max? Uh, I interviewed Kelly McEvers, who is one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered, and she's also the host of a new NPR podcast, which is called Embedded, which is great. And before that, before all that, Kelly was a war correspondent for NPR, and we talked about that time in her life as well, which is pretty crazy. Uh, our sponsor this week is MailChimp. They're simply the best way to send an email newsletter, which you need if you're doing just about anything these days. And now here's Max with Kelly McEvers. Hello, Kelly McEvers. Hi there. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to do this. I have been looking forward to this, and I have a lot of things that I want to talk to you about uh, the stuff you're doing now, but... In the interim, between when we scheduled this and now, I got a piece of writing of yours in my inbox from Lenny. Yeah. You wrote this piece called How It Ends, and since this podcast is ostensibly about writing, I feel like we should start there. Okay. And I actually want to start where that piece starts, uh-huh. which is with the fixers you had when you were covering the Middle East uh, for NPR. 
And I was kind of struck by how high up in this piece they are. Like it's sort of the first place you go is talking about Ahmed in Baghdad and and then your driver in Beirut and how close you were with them. I'm looking at it now and it says it was your first day on the job and you knew that you and Ahmed would die for each other. And <sighs> so I was hoping maybe you could we could just start by you telling me a little bit more about that relationship and, and maybe why that's where this piece starts. Huh. It's funny because I was driving a car. The piece starts, I'm driving a car in Los Angeles, which at the time felt like the most absurd place on earth. It's, of course, the place I live now, and it feels a little less absurd. It was September 2013 when I first moved back to the U.S. from the Middle East. So not only did Los Angeles seem really absurd, Ocean Park, Palms, like just these names, I just couldn't deal. Like it was so nice all the time. It was so horrible. (laughs) So many crazy weird things about moving to L.A., but like I'm driving all of a sudden again and it made me think like, oh, yeah, I just spent years of my life not driving myself anywhere. And of course I think about the guys, and it was all guys, who drove me places because I spent more time with them than anybody. And because they did everything. I mean, they're not like, there's not a single story that like went on the radio or got written that wasn't because of them. I mean, they are, they're the whole, they're all of it. We call them fixers too. I mean, sometimes someone's driving you, but they're also arranging interviews for you. Mm-hmm. It just sounds so practical. Like it's just this person providing a service, you know, you get in his car and he, it's just like, it's everything in between. Well, it also made me think about just reading that like, the tremendous amount of trust that you have to put in that person immediately. Like day one, you are in a car in a country you don't know, which is at war. And like your life is quite literally in that person's hands. It was that first day in Baghdad and Ahmed, my dear, dear Ahmed was driving me around. He'd picked me up in the airport and we were in our armored uh, Toyota Hilux, um, and he was explaining to me. I was like, "Was well, so what is ar- what does it mean to be armored?" And he's like, "You know, he's basically explaining like how many hours you have if you're in the middle of a shootout before the armor on the car stops working." And so, like, he's describing this to me as we're just like driving around town. This is like your ride from the airport. Yeah, and I'm just looking at him, and I'm like, "Holy crap, that's your job. You're not just my taxi driver." Like you're talking about a situation where we're going to we could be in some shit. And uh, I mean, I just immediately knew that like our relationship was going to be really intense. And I mean, God, but I'm like I got there in 2010. Like these guys had been through so much by the time I got there. Like I was peanuts. You know, they were there when one of our cars got blew up. Like in 2008, one of NPR's uh, cars got blew up while... Uh, the correspondent and producer and the other drivers were inside the restaurant. It was like parked outside the restaurant and it got blown up. So these guys had been through so much. So, I mean, they knew way more than I did about everything. That's the thing I wanted to ask you about. Like, you did this incredible piece called Diary of a Bad Year, which we're going to talk about. That was about your sort of dilemma with being a war correspondent. Right. But did Ahmed have the same 
of dilemma? Course. Like, was he conflicted or, or had he just become like hardened to his job? No, he's not a hardened kind of guy. He's a, <laughs> he's the perfect combination of, you know, tough. He's a big dude and he's tough. And I mean, seriously, if you were in a fight with anyone, you would want Ahmed on your side. But very, like, soft-spoken and polite, which is really important when you're trying to, like, get through a checkpoint or go into a neighborhood where you don't belong or trying to sort of sweet-talk your way past somebody who thinks you shouldn't be where you are. Um, But also, like, not super cynical. I mean, he'd been working with us since he was, like, 21. I mean, it was in his his entire adult life. was, like, working with journalists in his city um, as it completely and totally fell apart. Do fixers burn out? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ahmed wants to come to the U.S. Like, Ahmed has thought about coming to the U.S. with his family. It's way more stressful on them because they have to, like, go home at night. We're, like, in this, like, you know, walled-off compound, kind of. I mean, it's like a house. It's a regular house, like, where Iraqis used to live before they fled and then rented houses to members of the media for large sums of money. (laughs) Um but it was kind of like a, a secure street. Like we had guards on the end of the, on either end of the block, and there were like guards and guard towers, armed guards and guard towers, like twenty four hours a day. And so that was my life. But then at the end of the night, he he went home. It was way harder for him. And he like sat in two hours of traffic and like tried to get home before curfew and dealt with all the checkpoints and dealt with the fact that people harassed him because of what his sect was if he wasn't in the right sector in the wrong neighborhood. You know, and dealt with the fear and threats and bribes and corruption and all kinds of crap that I just like sat in my house and like was like writing stories. Do you think that fixers get enough credit? No, absolutely not. Not even close. I mean, we should name them in our stories. Like every time I went out and did a story, I was like, I wanted to just like have like a, a list of credits. It seems like it, it's a completely fascinating job that's almost completely in the shadows. Yeah, I always think about that. And so um, in one of the, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves, but in one of the podcast episodes that I recently did, sort of one of our main characters is is our local colleague. Sometimes you, you, you skirt the edge of like, I talked to my taxi driver and here's what he said, like that sort of old saw in journalism. And you really don't want to do that. You know, I mean, there's like so many ways to mock that approach. You know, it's the sense that like, oh, I just talked to that. I talked to the guy who I paid and got his opinion and therefore I'm done with my story. Like, you don't want to do that. Right. But you also want to acknowledge that these people are humans and that like this thing that you're crazy running around reporting on. You just saw like a a deceased man's arm like fall out of the side of the bus. Like you want to be like, whoa, dude, how does that affect you? So you left in September 2013. Yeah. That piece you did, The Diary of a Bad Year, it's in the show notes. People can listen to it. It's so visceral. I mean, you are wrestling with whether or not this is a ethical thing to be doing with your life. Yeah. You have a, a daughter who at the time was four. Three and four. Three and four. She was living in Beirut with your husband. Yeah. And... This this piece you did, the documentary, it's, it's it's basically an hour of you talking to other war correspondents, people in the tribe. Yeah. And every interview, it just ends with you being like, <laughs> should I quit? What should I do? Tell me what to do with my life. How present is that for you now? It's not a dilemma now. Well, you made your choice. Yeah. And I just want to go back. <laughs> you want to go back? Of course. I never really wanted to leave. Like, I, I did not want to leave. Like, 
I mean, it's a funny thing to look back on a piece like you you do a piece like that, and it's so funny to look back on it a couple years later and and know all the things that you know two years later. What do you know now? I mean, it's like, was it a dilemma? I mean, I, I don't honestly know if it was my own personal dilemma. I know that it was a dilemma for everyone around me. And so I was trying to, I think, to some degree, honor. I mean, I know that you can hear me on tape talking about like, oh, sh- shit, like this is this is no joke. Like for sure, there was a there was a moment when the Syrian war turned into the Syrian war when it was no longer an Arab Spring uprising. And it was like, OK, here we go. This is this is real. And like when the first journalist got killed, it was just like, holy crap. This is the real deal. For sure. I was definitely like, what have I gotten myself into? And you can hear it on tape. I'm with my kid in the stroller. And it's like, that is, that's for reals. But like the later dilemma of like, should I stay or should I go? It was almost like it was other people's dilemma. And I was trying to honor that by like going through the, the steps and figuring out like, all right. I mean, people want me to leave. Should I leave? And it was the hardest thing. I did not want to leave. Even when I finished that documentary, I still didn't want to leave. Yeah, well, it ends on a, somewhere between ambiguous and no, I don't want to go. I do not want. I did not want to go. Why didn't you want to go? <sighs> I just wanted to keep telling those stories. I just felt so. I just was so committed to telling those stories. Like, how can you walk away from the people that you've met in Syria and just be like, oh, sorry. Don't want to tell that story anymore. I can't deal. I'm just, I'm too overwhelmed. You know, and that's just sounds, it's just, it's just, that just does not compute in my brain. Like it does not make sense. That was really the thing. Because it felt like you were like pulling some escape hatch that they didn't have? Yeah, of course. I got to leave. They didn't. I could just make up my mind one day to be like, you know, this war is just too much for me. Gotta go. How just utterly unfair. Whether or not you left didn't make it more or less fair, right? Like, you could always leave. Yeah, I know. And then, like, tied up in all this is, like, so much hubris, I know, I realize. Like, it's not, this isn't clean at all. Um, It wasn't this sense that only I can tell your story. I mean, I think some journalists get that way. It's like, you need me. It's not that. It's just, like, I, you know, I, in my head, partially, too, I wanted to know how the story ended. Mm Mm-hmm. There was like a disruption of the narrative. And the narrative was, I am committed to the story. I am committed to telling it. And uh, just upping and walking away, just like that wasn't that wasn't a good ending. How did you decide to do that? I don't honestly know. Like, I've gone back and been like, when was the day? Like, when was it? Because that's a question I would ask as a journalist. Like, when was the moment? When was the moment? I don't know the answer. Like, I have no idea. It almost felt like the, it's almost like the documentary was sort of like, it was a freight train. And I couldn't stop it once the documentary came out. And once my mom heard it, you know, it was just like, well, I can't stay now after I said all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Which in some ways I was like tricking myself into leaving by doing it. Like, I don't know. Let me just try and parse what you're saying. <laughs> you did that documentary sort of to like appease the people in your life. Well, no, 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 no. To like, to honor their like, their want, their desire, you know, their... Right, to sort of like wrestle with, wrestle with the questions they were asking. Wrestle with the questions they were asking. Nice. Yes. Well put. You did some wrestling and you were like, ah, totally. It's very, it's very difficult. I'm going to, I would like to stay. <laughs> and then 
they heard it and they were like, how could that possibly be where you landed? Uh, exactly. Basically, yes. And you were like, I fine, fine. Yeah, that's kind of it. As I see it, two and a half years later, <laughs> Jay Allison would kill me, but <laughs> he wouldn't kill me. He would laugh a lot. Because, you know, he was part of this, too. You know, I mean, he was the person I was talking to when I was making this documentary. I mean, it was our idea to make it together. Jay Allison, you know, god of radio who produced this with me for transom.org. He and, and all his wonderful colleagues um, there in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, asking me all these questions that got me to kind of think about all that. I mean, I just didn't think about any of this stuff. I was just like, I'm in the life. That's it. I'm, I've got it, you know. And so when he started asking me the questions, then I realized, oh, yeah, other people in my life are asking these same questions. So, yeah, I did feel like I had to answer them. And what was the toughest answer? I mean, if you ended up in a place that was, I know all this and I want to stay, <laughs> what was the most compelling argument on the other side? I mean, writing that letter, it was just like, well, Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, that thing is like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just listening to the letter. I'm so sorry. It's really heavy. It is very heavy. It made, like, it made me think, like, maybe I should never leave the house. Like, maybe <laughs> I should just be by my kid's side in, like, a padded room. Oh, you know. This is the way I never think. Like, the, I don't think in what-ifs. But it was something that somebody told me, that somebody had told him, Paul Wood from the BBC, like a renowned war correspondent, told me that he, you know, he's got five kids, I think. And he was told by, a, I think, a British MP who was an ex-soldier that if you really want to do this work, if you're really serious about doing this work, and if you really want to be completely and totally honest about this work that you're doing and the dangers that you're and the risks that you're taking, you need to sit down and you need to write your family a letter. You need to consider that day when you're not here. You owe it to them and you owe it to yourself to like to be in that moment and, and, and really think about that. And so, yeah, I very grudgingly sat down and wrote the letter to my family. Okay, I think we just need to I think we need to play the clip. Here is you reading this letter in your documentary, Diary of a Bad Year. Dearest Nathan and Loretta. Oh, boy. If you are reading this, it means something terrible has happened. I write this with the full belief that I will be taking all the right precautions, but you never know. <clears throat> However deep your pain is, please understand that I was not cavalier and that I loved you both as truly and thoughtfully as I could, all the way until the end and beyond. If I can leave you with anything, let it be a little advice. While it might not give you comfort now, let it someday inspire. All of us must meet our end someday. Don't let knowledge of that inevitable death bring you fear. Rather, Look it in the face. Walk toward it at times if you have to. Because to live without fear is the only way to truly live. If my life means anything to you, let it be that. As the years go on, read this book and know that my love is an ongoing postscript to my life. That it endures. 
Know, Nathan, that you taught me as no one before what love truly is. And know, Loretta, that the day you came into the world was the happiest day of my life. Live on with the knowledge that you were loved and that you will be loved again and again by this wide and wonderful world. Yours. Kelly slash mom. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so... No laughing. I'm sorry. I just, after hearing that, it's it's like, that is... It's... I don't... Whenever I play the documentary for like a listening event, I, I always walk out of the room. I won't listen to it. And my husband has never heard it. He's just like, well, I don't... The, the, the thing for which it was intended is not true. And so I am not going to listen to that. You know, we were talking once about burning it when we got back to the U.S. We were going to, like, go out to the beach and just, like, set it on fire. Why didn't you? I think I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> it's in a children's book somewhere. I'll, yeah, I don't know where it is. I am going to venture a guess that maybe you lost it on purpose. No, 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 no. I think we just, in the move... I think for a long time, like, when I first got back, like, I always knew where it was. And I just stopped thinking about it. Help me understand, Kelly. You you write that letter. You record it. And where you land is that you want to stay. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, let's be clear. I was super conflicted. I didn't have any real good answers. My gut wanted to be there, but my head told me to go home. And I went home. Looking back now, two and a half years later, I know that I, I really wish that I had stayed. And for pretty much the year after we got back, I just wanted to be back there. So you regret it? No, I don't. No. It's this weird combination of, like, I don't regret it at all because, like, awesome stuff's happened. Yeah. Majorly awesome stuff. But now I still want to go back at the same time. Do you think you will? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, will I visit the Middle East? Yes, like many times for the rest of my life. I love that place more than anything. The minute I can go to Yemen again, I will be there. Like, I'll go back to Baghdad to report probably one of these days. You know, if there comes a day when the Assad regime falls, I'll be the first person on a plane. Like, there's not, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, like, that I still want to know and see. And for sure, I'll totally go back. But would you go back to the front lines? To, like, live as a correspondent in the Middle East? I have no idea. What did you take back with you from that place and that experience? How did the stakes of your life change? <laughs> I've never been on the front lines of a war zone. I didn't spend a whole lot of time on the front lines. The thing about Syria, right, was, like, it was the war next door. I was living in Beirut. Like, my kid went to this, like, beautiful school on the Mediterranean Sea. You could, like, walk through the campus of the American University of Beirut, which is one of the most beautiful places, like, down this amazing hill with, like, flowering trees everywhere and just, like, gorgeous architecture, you know? And, like, every weekend we partied like it was 1999 in Beirut. I mean, it is... <laughs> one of the best places to possibly be in the Middle East. Let me be super clear. Like, our lives were amazing. What were your lives like? We had a blast. I hung around with all the other people who do the exact same job that I do, and we talked about it constantly. And we, you know, we went to the mountains, and we went to the beach, and 
you know, we worked too hard um, and we played really hard. And our daughter had an amazing life. You know, she had just fun friends from all over the world. She went to this great international school. She was like learning Arabic when she was three years old. You know, yeah, no, our lives were incredible. But every once in a while, they weren't. You know, there would be a car bomb in Beirut and my husband would lose his mind trying to imagine like if that had happened anywhere near her school and I was off in Yemen somewhere and he couldn't get from one side of the city to the other. Like that's real, you know, and that happened. But most of the time, it was great. I know all that stuff, but I guess maybe if you ask me what I bring back, like I bring back those stories, like wherever I go, whenever I talk to people, I'm always just like the Middle East is not what you think it is. <laughs> it is nothing close to what you think it is. It's like, just tell me what you think. And like, it's not that like, it's, you know, it's I always get asked questions about women, about our lifestyle. I'm just like, I wore a bikini more in the Middle East than I have ever anywhere else. Like, yeah, going to the beach in Beirut and like drinking Bloody Marys was like a very regular part of our lives. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second and uh, tell you a little bit about Squarespace, which is making today's show possible. Squarespace is uh, its the way to build a website. I've been catching some flack in this office uh, for procrastinating on the completion of a website. Let me tell you, if you're a procrastinator, an ass-dragger, if you will, <laughs> Squarespace could save your life. You could tell someone that you that you had already made a website and then just make it like on your phone on the way to meeting them with Squarespace. When you start a self-help podcast, like yeah. a spinoff, and it's called Ass Dragger, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should use Squarespace for that website. Definitely. Well, it's great. It's great for we've done. We did um, uh, the Brownscast. Yeah, you you were supposed to build that website. Yes, the you ass, dragged you dragged the, ass. The, the, the ass was 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 passed through the mud. Yes, <laughs> and then you built that website in yeah. like minutes, and it looked great. Thanks to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash longform. You can try it out for free, no credit card required. When you decide to sign up, put longform in the offer code box. You'll get 10% off. Thank you, Squarespace. Here's Max back with Kelly McEvers. Can I ask you quickly about your husband? Yeah, sure. He's a journalist and a writer, and I, I just I wonder how how you guys as a couple navigated these choices. <laughs> Not easily. Um, it was really tough. It was really, really hard. We're good, but it's been, a, it was a really tough go there for a while. Did he resent you for it? Did he resent me? Oh no, I resented him. <laughs> he doesn't resent me at all. I don't think he, I resented him for making me come home. Poor guy, which is just a terrible thing to do to somebody. But he was ready to go. Totally. Yeah, I mean, he's written about this a lot in his own book, but um, we'd lived in the Middle East for a couple of years, and right when I was about to move to Baghdad is when his his father passed away in 2010. And so, you know, it was just a lot for him to deal with, and we had a one-year-old child. Wow. I want to ask you one more question about the letter. Sure. Do you think that everyone should write that letter? Oh, <laughs> no, like, no, no, and no, like, I, that's why I would burn it now. Like, no, it's, I mean, it's also on tape and, you know, it's all out there for the world. But no, like, seriously, we should not live our lives in fear. That's what I say in the letter. Like, do not, like, I just do not, like, 
to adamantly believe that like we should not be preparing for the doomsday. We should just live. I mean, yes, but maybe like writing a letter like that would help you do that. Maybe it would help a certain kind of person. <laughs> maybe just, I should just write the letter. Just, maybe that's exactly. What maybe about. that's what you're trying to figure out. If, you, if you've got some stuff to work through, Max, write the freaking letter. <laughs> but the not letter. everyone has to. Yeah. If you're sick, should you write the letter? If you're do, if you're a fireman, should you write the letter? If you're a soldier, should you write the letter? Yeah. You know, if you do these things where it's likely, you know, maybe you should write the letter. Um, but if it's just like in your life, I don't know. I mean, some people like to plan all that stuff and it does make them feel better. I'm sure there are a lot of 30-year-olds who've already written a will, and that's good, and that's smart, and that's reasonable. I just, <laughs> that's not how I do. Tell me about what it was like coming back, what, what it was like moving to Los Angeles. On the face of it, my life in Beirut and my life in Los Angeles are pretty similar. You know, like, I work a ton. I always come home for dinner. If I'm in town, like, I come home for dinner. and make dinner, and we all sit down, and we eat a goddamn dinner together. <laughs> So, like, day-to-day life feels mostly okay. And then every once in a while, still in my current job, I still am getting on planes and going places, whether it's in the U.S. to do stories for this podcast or, you know, I'm doing some stuff overseas, too. So that kind of reporting is still in my life, which is really cool. I'm also, like, hosting a daily news show, which is totally different, and so that's that's really weird. But, yeah, just being in Los Angeles, like, for sure. I mean, I think I was culture-shocked being in Los Angeles, mainly because before I lived in the Middle East, I lived in New York. Like, I think my culture shock with L.A. is more like because I'm used to, I'm from the Midwest and I spend a lot of time on the East Coast. Like, L.A. is just L.A., man. It's like there's all kinds of stuff to deal with here, you know, that's like... Everyone's in a good mood. Yeah, it's mostly awesome. I mean, that's the... But that's hard because, like, you know, as I say in the piece, I think that, like, the oppressively blue sky... I mean, some days you're just like, really, come on, Stop. Jesus, I'm in a really bad mood. Can you just rain? I'm just, it's not okay. But I mean, talking about the weather is so cliche, but I've, it's a thing. It's, it's a real, it's a real thing. What about journalistically? What was it like? What has it been like to switch your focus from being a correspondent to looking at domestic stuff and becoming a host. You are hosting All Things Considered. What what has that adjustment been yeah, like? Yeah, that show. Um, they still let me report, which is key, I think. I always say, like, you can't keep the animal in the cage for too long because it just, I start to kind of shut down if I'm inside <laughs> for too long. So there's that. That's kind of baked into the system, which is awesome because we have four hosts now. So it's awesome. So, like, we all get to go out and just, like, be in the world and all the different ways that we are in the world, which is so cool. Was hosting something you wanted to do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I had done it as a fill-in a couple times, and I was like, wow. <laughs> I think the my favorite part of it is so corny, but it was just like, I have been on my own out there in the the wherever for so long for 10 years before I got on staff at NPR I was a freelance foreign correspondent like I was like literally on my own for forever like I had no job no benefits for so long and I was just constantly like hustling hustling my own stories and literally just like waiting you know in the void for somebody to write back and say they were going to take my story and then finally I got hired on NPR but I was still out in the world you know I didn't know any of these people who were like emailing me 20 times a day like I knew none of them and so when I got back I was working at NPR West which isn't 
headquarters. So there was a great, awesome group of people here, but I still like wasn't totally connected. And so like I would go to DC and I would do these shows and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. (laughs) Like there's all these people and they're awesome and they're smart. And like we all do it together and then we make a thing and it's two hours and it's fun and it's like so dynamic and there's just like so many things you can talk about in this in this this tiny little space that just I loved it it was so 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 fun it's totally different from reporting because you're not in charge of the story anymore like you're not it's not you're not the final sign-off you're not the final voice you are one in a chorus of many and um at first like a lot of reporters like i did i hated i kind of hated that part of it you know just mm-hmm. like you want to own the whole thing but you just have you don't have really the time to do that that's not how the setup is as a host you're playing the role of the audience you know you're right. asking the questions that the people who are sitting out there are thinking and so in some ways you don't want to own the story and be the smartest person in the room and know everything about it you actually want to be the most curious person in the room who's like wait a second what about that what is the reason for your study? Or like, why did you choose Freddie Mercury? Like all these like great questions <laughs> that you get to ask. It's just like, it's a totally fun new set of muscles to use. Exactly. That, yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. It feels like a completely different set of muscles, but it's also like as the host, you're sort of like skipping across the surface, yeah. like touching a bunch of different stuff. But it's interesting because you said the thing that you miss or the reason that you didn't want to leave Syria was that you were so deep on this one story. On this one thing, yeah. So I think that's probably helped the process a lot too, is to understand, to really understand that there are lots of stories out there that are really important. And to also know that from the position of host, we can still give Syria its due. Right. We can call people up in Syria. I can talk to former ambassadors, generals. I feel like I'm doing the same interview over and over and over again about on ATC about like the red line. You know, Obama said he was going to bomb Assad when chemical weapons were used and then he didn't. And I've just been super fascinated with that. So, you know, I can be like, hey, guys, let's call Chuck Hagel and see what he says about this. And they're like, okay, like, that's awesome. I can do that. Like, that's cool. You know, a question that I had in my head while I was reporting in Syria, like is something that I can ask someone about in the studio and put on the radio. Have you had to like modulate your style at all for all things considered? From a reporter voice to a host voice? Yeah, there's a difference. Yeah, I mean, I guess I like I wondered if like you you how fully your personality can come through when you're hosting a show that's listened to by however many millions of people. I don't know. I try to have my personality. I don't know if I can suppress it really. I mean, I try to be myself. Although I will say, this is something I said to someone when I started, I'm always, I said, um, and I always say it now, is like, no one ever told me how hard it was going to be to be myself. Um, There is something weird about getting in that chair and sitting down and like, you sound not like yourself for reasons that are hard to quantify. But it's sort of like, I'm, I'm, I should be authoritative now. I should be somebody else. I should be an anchor. I should speak in important news tones, you know, (laughs) like... And so you actually have to fight against that, I think. So you have to fight really hard to just stay yourself. And a lot of that's about the writing. A lot of that's just about, like, feeling confident and okay with doing live radio, you know? Like, when you're live, you're nervous and you get tight and it makes your voice sound different, you know? Your throat's kind of constricted and everything's up high in your chest. You got to breathe and you got to have good posture and all this stuff in order to just kind of 
sound like yourself. So I, uh, ugh, I mean, I hope that I do. I don't know. I mean, I, I try. Oh wait, you have to have good posture. I'm like basically lying down right now. Oh, that's good. Um, no, <laughs> I when I am doing a live, like I get it's so funny. I just, like scoot to the front of my chair, like right before I'm going to do a thing, throw my shoulders back, get in, like a nice yoga posture, and then like take a really deep breath, and it's it's awesome. It like I feel like things come out more clearly. Do you think that confidence just comes with time, like with reps? Totally, for sure. Just like doing a number of lives, you know, being, you know, when that light goes on, you're just like, uh, I mean, the first few times it's just like, that's weird. (laughs) And after a while you're like, whatever. Have you reached whatever? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the first couple of times we had like big breaking news on the show where we had to go like back to back live for three, you know, because we do, we do three feeds of the show. So it's six hours. So the first one was Paris. The second one was San Bernardino. And, you know, if you had told me right before, like, you're going to be live most of the night tonight, I would have been like, oh, my God. But then it's like, you've got to do it. Shut up. And you just do it. And you're like, oh, oh, that wasn't that bad. And then it's also like, so what if you make a mistake? Like, you're a human being. Like, I actually think if we sound like human beings on the radio, human beings make mistakes. Human beings trip on their words or say, oh, wait, excuse me, hold on, let me try that again. And, you know, it's all fine. Like, and so I think just letting go of, like, thinking it all has to be super perfect actually helps, too. Do you think that that's, like, a a thing that's shifting culturally for NPR? Yeah, for sure. My experience of NPR is that not flubbing things was very important for a very long time. Yeah, it's different now. I mean, we sure. Do we like to blade the flubs out of the first feed for the second feed? Sure, why not? But like, we also are doing way more live segments now, and there's a real push and an emphasis on that because it just sounds brighter and it sounds more like life. Like life is not a series of perfectly curated conversations, you know, where every word just drops perfectly and the the, the the music comes up at exactly the right beat. Like, that's just not how life is. Life is messy and spontaneous and sometimes you laugh and snort and sometimes like David Green's going to sing some Barry Manilow on your radio, you know, like that's just going to happen. Like, <laughs> I think we all think too that like we should, when we're having conversations with people who know how to do it, we should do it live. And that sounds really nice. And we should spend sort of our resources on that really well-produced storytelling, like pieces, you know, like packages that you're really going to like put together and think about and produce. You know, we should free up our time to do those and then, you know, spend less time on those conversations that we can do live. Do you think that shift is just a natural progression or is that about something listeners are telling you something like the market's telling you where does that come from that's a really good question and i don't totally know like i haven't really heard the bosses expound on this that much at npr i think it's just partly a style thing i think we're trying to yeah i mean i think there's just some bosses right now who are like let's liven this up you know yeah it's obviously a thing i just don't know like i haven't like read the I don't. I haven't seen like the edict on it. You know what I mean. There hasn't been like a the era of the time, flubbing the memo. The era of live is upon us. Yeah, exactly. Flub away. More flubbing. More <laughs> flubbing. More flubbing, please. <laughs> I mean, my thing too is like, and when I was talking to bosses about what my life was going to be like, um, and it was going to be a world where I was doing a daily radio show and also a podcast. Like, I think that we all are thinking about podcasts and how people talk on podcasts and how 
what kinds of talking people are responding to, right? There's, you know, as we all know, two kinds of podcasts. There's sort of like the talking podcast and there's a storytelling podcast. And so we're all listening to that stuff and we're all thinking about, huh, well, if that's what people like in their earbuds, maybe we should talk that way too. We never flub on this show. <laughs> it's perfect. No flubs. Let's talk about that podcast. Okay. That is allowing you to not only just sit in a studio all the time. Yeah. Listening to Embedded and hearing you talk about sort of wishing you were back in the Middle East, it, it, listening to it now, it it feels like you're scratching some itch. Like, it might not be all the time, 24 hours a day, but once every couple of weeks, you're basically just throwing yourself into some super intense situation. Yeah, and yeah. trying to navigate your way through it. It like was part of the genesis of the show that you wanted to keep that part of yourself alive, to keep those muscles in shape? Yeah, totally. It's just what I do. Like, that is just the kind of story that I do. Um, I definitely wanted to do it in the United States. I mean, people kept saying to me, like, just do that. Do, do that kind of reporting you're doing. Just do it in the U.S. Like, treat the U.S. like a foreign correspondent. Like, I don't know what that means. They're like, just drop in somewhere and just, I don't know, do that thing you do. <laughs> Which wasn't super helpful, but... um but yeah, I mean, what it is, that thing I do is just go to places that people don't necessarily want to go and figure out what's going on. And then when I started to put all that together and think about it in terms of a podcast, I started to get really, really excited. What does a podcast allow you to do that you can't do on the radio? Longer stories, obviously, which is what every radio reporter wants to do, right? I wish I could do longer stories, which it's super cliche and... um Sort of annoying, because not all stories need to be long at all. There's a lot of stories that are really, really good short. A lot of conversations that are really, really good short. Marketplace, man, those guys are the masters at doing, like, so much in so little time. It's so cool, and nobody knows how hard that is. Like, that is the hardest thing to do, is to do it short. So, you know, you got to be careful. You can't be like, I can just do this story as long as I want. It's a podcast. You got to be, su like, we're super careful embedded we like always checking ourselves like this should be shorter right yeah this should be should we should shorten this <laughs> we're just trying not to make sure we're not indulging ourselves mm -hmm. that was one two i wanted to play with the form i wanted to get in the game everybody you know everybody else that's awesome is doing it i wanted to do it too like um it's a different kind of writing it's a different kind of reporting it's there's all this great like all these great chances to like be really transparent which i'm fine with and like but I, always, I also feel like you can check yourself a little better in podcasts. What do you mean? You know, you got to be a little more upfront about like how you got to a place or how you got to a person or how you got to a story or how you didn't get to something, how you failed at something, what you're thinking in a moment. I mean, it's interesting to say that you say you have to because I don't know that you have to. I mean, it feels to me like that's a big part of what you're what you're doing is making sure the listener knows the process because you're just parachuting into these places yeah i mean it's kind of like in a way you don't necessarily need a fixer because you speak the language right but in a way it's sort of like ex exposing that process yeah uh, yeah you're right you don't have to but one thing we know about what people like to listen to is they like authenticity for lack of a better way to say that they don't need you to be a hero they don't need you to be like the person who knows it all. Like I went to Indiana and here's what I found out. You know, like it's like they want you to be real, a real person. 
somebody who stumbles and fails sometimes. I think the more human you are, the more people can then relate to you. And the whole point is not so like, everybody likes me, but it's like, so people will want to take my hand and come along. So they feel like they trust me enough, you know, and that, yeah, that they, that they like me enough to come down the road with me. And so to do that, I feel like you need to be honest and transparent about what that road's like. You were saying that part of the reason you want to do the podcast is like everyone's doing podcasts and podcasts are real fun yeah what do you think of this whole uh this whole brouhaha this is this big (sighs) slate article about npr and podcasting blah 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 Alex Bloomberg and Adam Davidson and everyone's all mad and calling npr slow what 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 do you think as the face of the new (laughs) era of flubbing what do you think (laughs) flub away I think it's kind of silly. I think like setting up this like f- this this like opposition between like NPR and the rest of them is kind of silly. Like NPR does news and you guys do podcasts and and that's silly because podcasts other podcasts do journalism too and NPR does entertainment too. Like we've been making shows forever. Like if you look at iTunes like there's tons of NPR podcasts that are on there and that they're pretty popular and if you look at like obviously Serial and Gimlet and all these other guys and gals that are doing stuff like they're doing great journalism. So I just hate this whole like idea that there's like we're in one camp and you're in the other. So that drives me crazy. I think that it is a totally valid question to ask like if NPR has a strategy and what its strategy is going forward in the future. I think it's totally important for people inside and outside the system to ask that, right? I love that we have all these like sort of like pop-up ombudsmen in the world. Being like, all right, articulate your strategy. Like, that's great. Like, as a journalist, I love that. Like, yes, ask more questions. It's literally the first time in the history of the world that someone has said, I love having all these ombudsmen. (laughs) It might be. I love it. (laughs) Seriously, though, like, it's better for everyone if there's people questioning us and what we do and what our strategy is. Do I know, like, do I have all the answers about what the strategy is? Nope. But I know what the strategy is on my particular project. And that was, like... Wow, that sounds like a pretty cool idea. Here's some time. Here's some people to work with. Now we're going to get out of your way and let you try some things. And the thing we tried is feeling pretty awesome. So that's cool with me. Um, Does NPR have like a grand strategy to save itself in the digital era in the next 20, 25 years? I do not know. I don't know. And I'm glad that people are asking the question. Well, clearly they don't have the answer yet. And I don't think there's a media organization that, that does. could legitimate. Yeah, no one's, no one's got that answer. But they put a serious investment behind this show that you're doing. It's hard for that organization to move uh, fast enough to get these shows out in the world. That That is a criticism that has come from the outside, which yeah, I think for is sure. a, which is which is a fair one. Yeah. Like it takes it a takes long a while. time to get, to get these shows done. out in the world. Yeah. Do you feel any pressure as someone who has been put forward to try and see maybe kinda sorta what that answer could look like? The answer of the future, you mean? Yeah. Like I feel pressure because people ask me about it all the time, but I don't I am so deep in the making of this mofo that like and I'm not in D.C. It's horrible some days. It's wonderful some days. Like, way far away in L.A. 
So I'm not feeling internal pressure to be like, go be the face of NPR, save us. No. What pressure do you feel? <laughs> Getting this goddamn podcast done every week. Oh, my God. This thing is insane. It's so hard. It's so much work. Um, it's just a lot of work, you know. <sighs> and and hosting a show. Like, I have two jobs. That's I feel an insane amount of pressure because I have two jobs. And, I mean, I brought it on myself. Like, it's it was totally my plan. My design. My foolish, foolish design. Like, sure, I can do it all. No problem. Um, so that's the pressure I feel right now. When the season is done... And we can sort of all step back and look around. I'm going to be having some conversations with some people. Sure. What's the future of Embedded? What's the future of NPR? What's the future of podcasts? Sure. I will be asking those same questions. All right. Well, once you figure out what the future of NPR is. <laughs> I'm going to call you back. Come back we'll on the show. We'll break it on your show. <laughs> <laughs> Epilogue. NPR has figured it all out. P.S. Because yeah. Kelly McEvers Future secured. It all yeah, out. right. I have no answers. Um, so yeah, talk like yourself. That's like my answer. <laughs> NPR will be fine if we all just talk like ourselves. <laughs> How are you choosing these stories? Early, early on, when we were first, you know, kind of like throwing down some pilots and figuring out what this was all about, it was just sort of like, oh, that thing happened. Let's go check that out. And then it was like, I think we should make this about the, you know, we should take something from the news. And so, like, for Indiana, for instance, like, my husband was just, like, kept reading these headlines, like, on page 16 of the L.A. Times, just like, he's like, there is an H- there is an HIV outbreak in Indiana. He's like, I don't know if you guys are covering this, but he's like, that, I don't, I don't understand why that's happening. And I'm like, I don't either. What's that all about? And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, like, NPR, all things considered, covered the crap out of that story. Like, we had officials from Indiana on, like, we really went, you know, that we went after that story on the daily news. But it was still one of those stories that just like you've got this itch where you're just like, but wait, why? You know, where you just feel like there's still like the questions aren't answered. That's how I pick a story like that story that's just like, hang on. I still don't feel like I have the answer. I'm like such a narrative person. Like I need a story to to answer my questions. Like I'll walk by the TV and I'll see a thing like in the newsroom and I'm just like, what is that? Why? Why is that happening? You know, and then maybe I can go to the Internet and, like, read five things and be satisfied, but sometimes I can't. And that's the story we usually pick. And then some stories, it's like we were on another story. We're on one story, and then it kind of unfolds, and we're like, oh, huh, that thing is explaining that thing that we've heard in the news. Let's do that. You know, so it's just all, like, does it fit this formula? Is it just, like, does it help you understand a thing that passed you by in the news? So as as we're recording this, there have been four. Yeah. And two of them have been about gangs. Oh, yeah, that's true. Biker gangs and El Salvadoran gangs. That's true. That's true. I got a thing about gangs. Yeah. What's the thing about gangs? Well, I mean, I don't know if I have a thing about gangs, but I mean, I um, one of the first kind of big reporting assignments that I did was for the Chicago Tribune magazine. 1999. That's right. And there's a pretty funny This American Life uh, segment about this from... I don't know, that year or the next year. Um, Because I was a very young reporter at the time. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was getting all this amazing access. Like, it was, like, embedded. It was, like, embedded reporting without knowing what the hell to do with all the material you got. That was basically that that at the time. I was, like, 27. So I talked a lot to Ira Glass about this, and they kind of made fun of me, which I deserved. Which was just, like, spending all this time in Chicago with um, female gang members. 
and uh, not really knowing how to write the story. And then eventually the Chicago Tribune assigned a veteran reporter to be with to work with me. Um, and we wrote like a cover story for the magazine. But that was my first taste of gangs. That doesn't totally explain what your thing about gangs is. I wonder whether the thing is about something you talk about in that documentary, which is about dopamine and adrenaline going and being places. somewhere dangerous yeah. and going and talking to the people you're not supposed to talk to yeah. and going to the place that you're not supposed to go. Of course. Of course. Of course it is that. I'm not sold on the idea of adrenaline and the idea that there is an adrenaline addiction. I don't know if that's really true. The guy I talked to in my documentary talks about dopamine and just how some people are wired in different ways. He actually talked to a set of twins. One had higher levels of dopamine than the other, and the one who had lower levels like was a stay-at-home mom, and the one who had higher levels was like, I don't know, a, a firefighter or a, did a dangerous job, like jumped out of planes or something like that. I'm curious. I would love to spend a year like writing that book. Like, what is it about me that makes me this way? I'm dying to find the answer to that question or like listen to an hour of invisibilia about it. That would be amazing. I wish I had the time to do that. And I would. And maybe I will someday. But in in lieu of any sort of scientific research, it's just how I've always been. You know, I mean, I grew up in a really small town, but like, you know, on a Friday night, I was more likely to be in a Camaro that was going way too fast, doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing than staying at home reading my library books. And so I just think it carried over into my work. I lived in Chicago. I was in my 20s, like four blocks away from where I lived at the time, was this like center of, you know, some of the most really intense gang activity in the city at the time. Um, There were shootings, you know, just like a half a mile away from where we lived, all kinds of crazy stuff going on in our neighborhood. So I was I was close to it. It was something I was interested in. It was, again, it was one of those things. I was like, well, how does that work? You know, I'll go find out. And it's just the fact that when I actually think, when I ask that question of myself, like I don't have an inhibition to then go to, to take the next step. People are always like, well, aren't you scared? I'm like, no, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, so yeah, am I wired that way? I don't, I would love to know the answer. But I just know that like, you know, I've always been like jumping out of trees and swings and stuff. And this is just the adult version of that. I guess. Right. Yeah. Like I actually found people who will pay me to do it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What does your daughter think of what you do? She's six years old. I mean, she doesn't think a whole lot about what I do. She knows I'm on the radio. She won't listen <laughs> to the show. Really? Nope. Yeah, she has no interest. Um, like her dad, I'm like, mom's on the radio. You want to listen? She's like, no. I hear her all the time. Unless there's people around. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's my mom. So unless there's like bragging rights involved, like she doesn't, she has no care. I don't know. I can't wait till she's older and I can tell her all about it and take her with me on things. Do you hope that she's like jumping out of trees and driving too fast in Camaros? Of course not. She has no business doing any of those things. No, of course. Yeah, no, she's going to be... Free to do whatever she wants. God help me. It's all going to come back and punish me, as my mother likes to remind me over and over again. She's like, you wait. If you think it was uh, nature, not nurture, do you think she's wired that way, too? She's pretty brave. She's pretty cool. She's amazing in the ocean. She loves to climb trees. Um, she doesn't She doesn't have anxiety. You know, she's just not a kid who's just like, I'm worried about that. Like, what? She doesn't understand the word worry, which I, you know, respect and encourage. So <laughs> she's probably doomed. She probably hasn't heard it very much. No, no, her father. No, we've got the the full yin-yang balance going on <laughs> at home. So 
there's there's ample worry on one side of the household. <laughs> He's also hilarious and will do anything crazy. Like he and I hitchhike together and, you know, he like paddle surfs every day. So he's not the teetotaler that I make him out to be. But he did convince you to come home. Oh, of course. Yeah. Partly. I mean, he was part of it. He didn't tell me to. He would never do that. But he really wanted to come home. What do you think he'd say if you said, I want to go back? Oh, I say it all the time. <laughs> He's just like, okay. The, the other, I mean, like, we're constant. Like, our plans for the future are always hilarious. It's like, wow, if I get this thing, we might actually stay in L.A. for, like, another few months. Okay, cool. That sounds great. And then the other day, I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that thing. Let's go to, like, Mexico or something So to live. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's totally game. So that thing, I mean, part of part of what I'm hearing you say is that that jumping out of trees and driving to Camaros and going in to hang out with gangs and going to Beirut, like, it's not really falling off, right? Like, that was part of the guy's, the, the scientist in the documentary. His theory was, like, you lose dopamine. Oh, right, yeah. I don't know what age. he was talking about, yeah. No. That hasn't been your experience. No, it's just uh-uh. as uh, he says, it's a bell curve, right? Yeah, I'm supposed to be hitting it now. I'm 45. Like it should be over, but <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I don't. I just don't have like the the physical stamina I used to have. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that I just can't do anymore, or I never could. I'm not, it's not like I'm like this like physical. I don't want to break myself to be like I'm not like super in shape or anything. But it's you know, I just can't like stay up three nights in a row like writing a story from gang territory or whatever. But you still want to go? Yeah, no, I just went to South Sudan in February with um, Jason Bobian, and we were we lived in a, this is one of the upcoming episodes, we lived in a Doctors Without Borders hospital inside a massive refugee camp in South Sudan. Like, we lived in tents for six days and kind of lived their life. Well, I hope, uh, I guess I don't need to hope. It sounds like you're just going to keep doing this. I was going to say, I hope you keep doing this, but I don't need to say that because you're just going <laughs> to keep not. doing it. You do not need to keep saying it. That's right. Nope. And no choice. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week is Courtney Harrell. Courtney also pitched in on last week's special episode. and We did not say her name at the end, and for that I feel great shame. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks also to our sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, and Squarespace. Thanks most of all to Kelly McEvers. Uh, Her show is called Embedded. You should listen to it if you are not already. We'll see you next week. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.